We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. This episode is sponsored by FX's Fleischman is in Trouble. Starring Jesse Eisenberg, Claire Danes, Lizzie Kaplan, and Adam Brody. This drama tells the story of recently divorced Toby Fleischman, who dives into the world of app-based dating with the kind of success he never had in his youth. Then, his ex-wife disappears, leaving him with their two children and no hint of her return. Effects's Fleischman is in trouble. Streaming November 17th, only on Hulu. Okay, ready? Think what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in a I want to this her ratio. Okay, though. This her ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> So when you look back on novel writing, some people say, oh, my God, that was the hardest thing that I ever did. And I'm exhausted. I never want to do that again. You know, maybe they will, but they pulled out all their hair or whatever. And some people are like, that was so much fun. And I want to get messy with characters. And like, which side are you more? The messy part. I'm so, I'm so excited. So excited to work on something new, to go down paths that... Maybe I didn't necessarily feel like I could go down with my first book. Maybe consciously or not consciously. Maybe I wasn't even aware that I was holding back in some places. Um, and so I'm really excited to to, to go further and, and explore possibly genre in a different way. Or like hate what I do and then start over. And I, I'm, I'm so excited to, to just get into a new story. The other thing about The Other Black Girl is like, that story was in me for so long, I think, and it, mm. it wasn't a novel until when I started writing it, of course, but like, it was in me when I was writing essays in grad school. It was in me when I was growing up in Connecticut, one of very few Black people. So like, that story poured out of me in like an almost unnaturally natural way, <laughs> uh, whereas this one's going to be work. Zakia Dalila Harris is the author of The Other Black Girl, which is one of the publishing sensations of the year about a girl working in publishing. Of course, she's like one of the very few black people around, which leads to chaos. It's an amazing book, an amazing novel. And I just want to talk to her about writing because I love talking to writers. So let's go. It's Zakia 
Dalila Harris on Torre Show. What do you love about writing? Hmm. Gosh, what do I love about writing? You know what I love? I love that feeling I get when I've been working on a sentence or a scene um, for 10, 20, 30 minutes a day. And when I finally hit that sentence and it feels so right, that feeling is one unlike anything else I've ever felt. Mm. Really satisfying. Mm. Yes, I definitely know that. And the you throw out some clay and then you pare it back and like, what is the right word here? And I think one of the one of the things for me has been to try to remove most adjectives and all the adverbs and just write with verbs. Wow. You know, I've never thought of it that way, but I feel like I kind of do that too. Um, and I think clay is such a beautiful way to put it. Cause that's also what I do. I think when I'm, when I'm writing by hand, cause that's a lot of times how I start any draft of anything and it is clay all over the page. <laughs> Pieces here, scribbles there, you know, do so you you write longhand? I, I do. I do. Yes, I do too. Yes. I just feel like there's so many roadblocks with computers. I mean, obviously, like there's the obvious one, right? Like social media. But mm. I just feel like it's got to look a certain way when it's on the page. Whereas like when I'm writing, like my left-handed chicken scratch makes sense to me. And I can just like mold it, you know? Mm. Well, I feel like when I'm writing longhand every word's going to be earned because like if it's not a necessary word my hand's going to be like really like <laughs> written 2,000 words today already like really we don't need that you know typing is so easy to go fast and like you know and I get it I, I get an extra layer of editing in handwriting and then inputting and inputting I'm looking at again like do I need that do I need that Exactly exactly so much editing when I'm writing and then exactly that like when I'm typing it this is my favorite part cuz that's what I did as a kid um before I learned how to type I was writing stories in a notebook and I would like transfer them while like watching I don't know Powerpuff Girls um and like <laughs> that editing that happens <laughs> I, <love> that show. <laughs> I know <laughs> I still watch it sometimes it holds up I think <laughs> But I think that's important too. I mean, that feeling of feeling like I'm fixing it while I'm transcribing it. And then I'm going to fix it again. Sometimes I'll print it out too. I don't know if you do this, but I'll print it out. Yes, yes, yes. And like go crazy on it. Yes, I will definitely see different things on the screen than on the page when you print it out. Like I'm like, how did I not notice this sentence doesn't make any sense? I just need to, to flip it around or whatever. And like, now it makes sense. But I did, I looked at it three times on the screen and it seemed fine. And now I'm like, this is a mess. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's increased even more for me in the last year and a half. Like it really looks different to me. I am ingesting information and producing information in such different ways than I did before the pandemic. Not to go down that pandemic road, but like... <laughs> no, not to go down that road, but I do wonder if, I mean, like, you know, when, not that I, not that I would know the answer to this question, but when one has a massive, gigantic, ginormous success of a book, do you then feel pressure 
And like the, <laughs> I know this is such a fucked up way to ask the question. Like, do you feel pressure now that you've had so much success with this one? I, you know. Are you liberated? Or are you like, oh my God, the world is waiting for this next one? I, 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 it's hard to say because I'm still in that sweet spot where, I mean, I have a chalkboard wall behind me. You can't see it, but like, I'm in that spot where like, I'm just throwing spaghetti at the wall and it's very, uh, you know, the bubble's going to expand, but right now it's like me and a couple people I've talked to this idea that's still forming in my head. And so I'm really excited. It feels different in a lot of ways from uh, the other black girl, but I don't feel the pressure yet. I think when slash if <laughs> this book uh, is published or when that starts to come up, I think that's when the pressure will come in because I, you know, we all compare this person's movie to their last movie or this person's book to the last book. And I will be doing that myself. Um, I heard as critic, I think in a lot of ways. So, so we'll talk, we'll check back in. We'll check back in. <laughs> what do you hate about writing? Mm. The writing process itself. No, no, no. I was asking you. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You, you hate the, I mean, people hate the writing process. They're like, you know, pulling their hair out. But what, yeah, what do you hate about the writing? I mean, the, the writing process, or if there's another part of the whole business that you like, this I cannot stand. Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, this is ironic because I'm chatting with you, but the thing that's been, I think, hardest for me has been self-promotion. Because that's like mm. the, that's the part that, um, so I worked in publishing, right? Like I knew... I knew enough and I knew all the glamorous, uh, quote unquote, glamorous sides of being an author. I mean, I also knew there were bad reviews and, and unfortunate commentary and all those things. But like the the amount of, um, yeah, self-promoting, it's not something that ever came natural to me. Um, but I also think it's positive in some ways because it has forced me to own myself, you know, own my work and and be proud of it. Um, but again, it's like I, I'm not by nature on uh, social media, or I wasn't before. So, so that's been something that's been hard, uh, to adjust to. And I also think that the thing though, let's see about writing itself that I don't love, um, it's not the solitary part. I actually don't mind that part at all. I think I would say like, Oh, the thing I would say is getting into the zone. I, I, I love the feeling. It's really satisfying when I get into that zone, but I sometimes need more time. Like I never know. I never know how much time I'm going to need. I never know how much space between, you know, getting off the train, leaving a doctor's appointment, how much time I need between that and starting to, you know, look at a page. That's going to change depending on so many factors. So that, that to me is like the most difficult thing that you can do it anywhere, but like you also can't, I can't do it any, just anywhere. Mm. The, the procrastination makes me feel so guilty, yeah. right? but you need it, but you're like mentally exhausted, but I'm like, oh, I feel so bad. Right. And you can't, it's not like other professions. I mean, there are a lot of professions like writing, but it's not like the professions where you can like take stock on how much you put out. And then it's like, this translates into what you get out of it. Like it's, it's no. continue, like continuously changing and flowing and you just never know. <laughs> Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. 
This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So, so when you look back on novel writing, some people say, oh my God, that was the hardest thing that I ever did and I'm exhausted. I never want to do that again. You know, maybe they will, but they pulled out all their hair or whatever. And some people are like, that was so much fun. And I want to get messy with new characters. And like, which side are you more? The messy part. I'm so, I'm so excited. So excited to work on something new, to go down paths that Maybe I didn't necessarily feel like I could go down with my first book, Um, maybe consciously or not consciously. Maybe I wasn't even aware that I was holding back in some places. Um, And so I'm really excited to to go further and and explore possibly genre in a different way or like hate what I do and then start over. And I'm, I'm so excited to to just get into a new story. Um, The other thing about the other black girl is like, that story was in me for so long, I think. And it, mm. it wasn't a novel until when I started writing it, of course. But like, it was in me when I was writing essays in grad school. It was in me when I was growing up in Connecticut, uh, one of very few Black people. So like, that story poured out of me in like an almost uh, unnaturally natural way. <laughs> uh, whereas this one's going to be work. And I'm really excited to like, I mean, not that that one wasn't work. That sounds really, you know, you know what I mean, right? Like, it's like. I do, I do know, I, well, I do know what you mean because I have had a lot of similar experiences going to private school and being like the only one and, uh, you know, work experiences where you're the only one, you know, I came to New York, everyone else was at the source and, you know, at Vibe and I'm at Rolling Stone, the only one. And so to hear somebody talk about those experiences, I don't know if you ever read Lorraine Carey's book, uh, Black Ice, where she kind of talks about some of that stuff. Um, yeah, no, it's, 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 it's just a really beautiful memoir. It's just like one of those things we needed to get through prep school. Cause like, Oh, we're not the only, only ones like, but I mean, I mean, yeah, like you, you allude to, you know, in the book and just in your conversation, there's a tremendous loneliness of being the only one in these academic and these professional situations. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And no, I, I, I got really used to it as a young person and I didn't really question it. Um, and, but while I was questioning it and looking around the table and, you know, sending my like high roll emails to my coworkers, like (laughs) about how frustrating (laughs) like this meeting was, or like the fact that we didn't buy this book, like, I also enjoyed a lot of parts of <laughs> being in publishing. Um, and sometimes I would just like not forget, but I would tune it out because it's exhausting. It is really exhausting. Um, and really only after, and actually no, even now that I'm looking back on it, it's, it's really interesting, you know, reconciling my experience and, and my relationships that I still have with a lot of people I worked with there, um, who I still see, um, including one of my, my bosses even, um, with the book and all of the pain and the hard things that were really frustrating about publishing and being the only one. And I think that's a lot of, I think that's a lot of us. <laughs> we're always constantly like, I think, trying to really piece together like ourselves and, and where we fall into that, that greater narrative, I guess, of like, being the only one, um, feeling like you have to speak for everyone all the time, everyone meaning every black person or a person of color, if 
you know, the publishing house is really in that place um, where it's all white people. But yeah, it's it's just it's it's hard. It's, I'm I'm seeing a therapist now, uh, or I was. And you're seeing a therapist. Do, are you seeing a a black therapist? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, yeah. To make sure you can get into those issues. Yeah, yeah. Because they're all they're all connected. They're all connected. And again, I'm just slowly unpacking all of those things. And a lot of times, I'm unpacking them publicly with with strangers, <laughs> like white strangers, which is something also very interesting. I feel like I could write a book about <laughs> this experience alone. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. You remind me of something that Mark Lamont Hill once tweeted that stuck with me where he was like, you know, uh, you know, in any company after there's a big meeting, the black people will have a meeting afterwards to be like, that was some bullshit. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those meetings. And then another meeting after that meeting. And then, yeah. <laughs> and the microaggressions, you know, from people who kind of aren't your allies and maybe even people who, like, are your allies, but they stay, they say stupid shit. And it's like, oh, God, just don't, don't. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. Yeah, yeah. You really don't have to say. I think that's, like, the the title of 2020. <laughs> Just didn't have to say anything. You didn't have to say anything. 
God, and you know, I, I, I find that, you know, in those situations, we get to complain about racism one time, the entire time you're employed there. And then after that, you, after, a second time, you're a troublemaker and you probably shouldn't be here. Um, I had a situation in one of my workplaces where, um, where, where, where somebody had said to us that we needed to do more about Black History Month. And in a meeting of about 15 people where I was the only black person, somebody thought it was funny to say, what about white history month? And I was like, wow. What like, year was this? Just curious. Every month. <laughs> I can't throw everybody under the bus because then they'll all know. Oh, what no, I'm no, no. About. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just curious. I was just curious. But, you know, but like, you know, and, and, and I, I, then they said, what about white history month? And I said, that's every month. And and the whole meeting just devolved into silence and just ended right there. And everybody like walked away like, oh, Torres the asshole. I'm like, oh, I killed the vibe. Not you being like, what about white? And, and I think we all have those kind of stories that's like, oh, God. And it just weighs on you. Yeah. Oh man, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm cringing because I, I can feel that. But you know, I, I don't think I cat, not cashed in my, my token, but I genuinely never said something directly in the moment. And that's something that I also um, regret, but I also realize it's part of the environment and part of me being uh however old I was at the time when I started, uh, 22 or 24. Gosh, I can't remember now. This is ridiculous. It wasn't that long ago, but it just felt I was in a different place. I was in a different headspace. Whereas now that I've written this book, the irony is I feel like I could go, <laughs> go and actually um, be there and speak up. But the other irony, I guess, is that I don't think that would necessarily <laughs> make a difference because publishing is still struggling. No, it wouldn't make a difference, but I, f- I felt guilty like i was letting the race down if i didn't say something which is a whole other burden yeah yeah no you're you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in a way and it's like where is that pressure coming from you're the only person in the room right who get who knows but that i completely completely can understand and then that's what i was trying to tap into with, with nella um and i actually this is funny because this reminds me of Something that happened to me as a young person in elementary school, Black History Month related also. Um, <laughs> that time I was always like, oh God, like, here we go. Uncle Tom's cabin, um, just a lot of awkwardness of, you know, in elementary school. But I was asked to, I don't even know how I was asked or if I was approached, whatever. But me and the two other Black students at my elementary school were asked to play Black people in the their Black History Month plays. So I played mm-hmm. Phyllis Wheatley. Um, okay. Another student played uh, George Washington Carver. And I think another student played Langston Hughes, Another well, two other Black guys who were, I believe, in different classes because they always spread us out <laughs> to make sure everyone else got the diversity except for, for me. Um, <laughs> and so so they spread us all out. And and I had to, you know, I had to play this, this slave, of course, who was the Phyllis Wheatley, um, very much an amazing, well, accomplished many amazing feats. Um, but it, it's a thing that I looked back on and I still look back on and I'm like, 
why did I do that? Like, <laughs> why did I say yes? Cause I was a very shy kid. I was not a person who wanted to be in any shows and I did not want to draw attention to my blackness at all. So like, I definitely must've been strong armed into doing this thing. I was 10. Um, but it's like, who else would have played her? Right? Like nobody else should have played her either. It would have felt strange to watch and to, yes. to not say yes. I was always, you know, taught to be proud of who I was and where the people I came from. So that, yeah, I, it's, it's hard and it's still happening. Stuff like that still happens. You talked about not feeling black enough, which I've definitely felt. I definitely know what that's like. Yeah. Um, do you still feel like that or is it mostly behind you or is it still with you? It's, it's mostly behind me. Um, I think, you know, I mean, <laughs> this book has really, <laughs> I mean, the book has black girl in the title. So <laughs> I, I do feel like though, in a way I've proven myself, not that I, I should have to, but I do feel mm. now like I am in a place where it's like, I, I am who I am. I'm a product of so many different environments of my mom who uh, grew up in Connecticut and was around white people a lot as a kid versus my dad who integrated his, his elementary school and or middle school in, um, in the sixties. So I'm a product of them. And then I'm product of the white bubble I kind of grew up in. And then the, the black girlfriends that I made at UNC Chapel Hill. And I just, I, I've, I've really come to terms with all of the pieces of myself that make me who I am and, and that I am so feel like I'm personally very much in touch with my blackness, but that's something that I'm still not, I still have those moments, you know, where I, I, I'm aware of how I speak. I'm aware of how I sound to, to strangers, you know, I'm a, a, I'm aware of um, the fact that my husband is a, a white man. Um, so there's also that dynamic. Uh, we live in Park Slope, but it's like, you know, it's still when you're in the city, it's you still get it's common. It's common in Brooklyn. <laughs> it's common in Brooklyn. I know, I know, but of course, of course. But I mean, like, whenever we we leave Park Slope, and if we go down to, you know, I mean, we've gone down south once and it was, it was strange. Um, <laughs> it was for a wedding, but it was wonderful. But we also have just gotten a lot of interesting looks or sometimes comments. And, and that's something I think a lot of interracial couples can relate to. And it shouldn't have anything to do with my confidence, my blackness, but it definitely does. Um, but I don't, it doesn't get to me. Um, in the moments it's frustrating, but I know who I am. So that's my long way of yeah. saying a little bit, but not really. <laughs> um, it sounds like UNC was a critical time for you to really explore and embrace your blackness. Can you talk about some of the things that happened there, which which is happens to a lot of us? I know my college experience was important to, for that. Um, but what, some of the things that happened to you that you read, that you experienced, that 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 sort of opened a new door for you and a new relationship to your blackness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will never forget when I first, my dad and I first visited the university, um, and we were on the on the the older part of campus where the Confederate statue um, mm. was. It's no longer there. Um, some some uh, good civilians uh, <laughs> did something with it, um, but uh, I remember that moment and being like, "This is weird." Um, as someone who grew up in Connecticut and very, very, like we didn't really have any family down South. Um, 
most of my family, my dad's side, migrated from Mississippi to Chicago and, and both great migration on both sides. Um, but I just felt like I wanted to be down south for, for whatever reason. Um, and seeing that statue was like, okay, this is really strange um, and weird. But I really was in love with the campus and then loved loved the people, loved the sports culture, got really into basketball um, and, and football even. Um, not anymore, really, in the football side. But <laughs> it wasn't until I made – I mean – so this is something I also think about a lot, but most of my friends, my good friends were, were white um, until I found this first amazing friend, a young black woman who, which was a friend of my, one of my sweet mates, band members or something like that. And we were both very awkward and, and she introduced me to the misadventures of awkward black girl. And I was like, mm. Oh, so that was a big part of it too, was, was talking to her about this show. Um, and knowing there was someone else, you know, from North Carolina, a black girl who's also really awkward and, and insecure and quirky, um, and didn't judge me for, for how I talked or, or, know how hard I wanted to work in school because that was something else that that happened to me in high school a lot um and so she was my kind of my gateway um and I'm actually seeing her in a couple of weeks I'm really excited um but she was my gateway into this uh beautiful circle of black women um who came from different parts of the south mostly um who were quirky and also strange and awkward and a lot of them were natural and at the time I was not natural so that was kind of my first foray into that too of of, hair. of natural hair, yeah. And yeah, yeah, um, yeah. so, flash forward. So what were to, you? What were you before? I was relaxing. I was relaxing for from ten to about five or six years ago. So, so I was like still in the the creamy crack zone. Um, and <laughs> uh, but at hearing those conversations, you know about what they're using in their hair and, and styling each other's hair was amazing because I hadn't really had that. I mean, I, my mom would do my hair as a kid, but she was relaxed. Um, her hair was relaxed. My sister's hair was relaxed at the time. So like that was something new to me. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're still in touch this, me in this circle. I'm seeing all of them actually next month in North Carolina. So I'm, I'm really excited that I still have that, that space. And, and I was able to really explore my natural hair and did, everything through them. Did they encourage you to go natural or was it just, just w- watching their, their, just modeling it? No, no, they, they never did. Um, I mean, if, if we all had different, everyone had different hairstyles too. So it was a few natural, but then also, um, I believe one or two relaxed. And I mean, everyone was changing, you know, we always, well, every, a lot of people would change. I, I was still rocking the relaxing for a while. But but at that moment didn't come for me of wanting to cut my hair off until um, when I moved to Brooklyn. Um, but they definitely sprinkled those seeds at UNC. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I ask everyone who comes on the show, and we're flowing right into this to so the heart of it, uh, what does being Black mean to you? And where does it show up in your work? Mm. I think for me, I haven't really thought about this until this very moment, but I think for me, it's really my ties to my parents and my gen- the generations that came before me. Um, because I 
didn't really have that social life as a young person or for a while um, of having, you know, black friends. Um, I got that from home. I got that from listening to the spinners and, and black eyed peas on new year, you know, all of those kind of traditions of talking to my grandparents about their experiences or really having them talk to me <laughs> about them for a while. Cause I was too young to really, sure. you know, um, but really, I think for me, it's, it's knowing where my, as far back as possible anyway, um, my roots come from. Um, I also have a, a memory of my dad spending time trying to make a family tree when I was a kid. Um, and he was somewhat successful. It was harder. This was before really the internet was as robust as it is now. But that also is, is an early memory that definitely shaped for me, you know, the, the meaning of that, of that having that connection to generations before you and, and, and the other black girl, I, I, I didn't originally write these multiple storylines of, of Nella's experience moving through present day and, um, or not present day, but a few years earlier than now, I guess. Um, I had her only. And after I'd written the first draft, I, I started weaving in the, the voices of Kendra Ray and Diana, the two older women in this book who'd also been, um, in the publishing world, like 30 years before her. And that just felt so natural to me because I look back at what other people have done before me. And I felt like Nella would also do the same. Yeah, no, I think, I think you touch on a lot of what I feel in that you feel deeply connected to uh, the ones who came before us and the ones who sacrificed and fought and and died and lived so that we could have these opportunities and not just the writers who preceded us, but the the freedom fighters and the enslaved folks and the family members and all, you know all those people. Like we, I, I can feel tangibly standing on their shoulders. And now I have to do something with my opportunity because people died and lived so that I could have this opportunity. And yet that's, that's kind of what you're, what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. I also think it can be a lot of pressure, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a lot of yeah. pressure. Um, and yeah, but the, but yeah, that, that's exactly it. And the, the fact that so much has happened, so, so much has happened, but the fact that like you and me are here sitting here, like people survived. For us and that's just like I'm not a very religious person at all but like that really like gets me feeling you know <laughs> very like passionate what does eating healthy mean to you whatever your eating goals Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, Market. 
thrivemarket.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Who are the writers um, who formed you, the people you read, who made you the writer you are? Hmm. Ah, I mean, gosh. I, I, I would say, so the, I didn't touch too much on, well, I didn't really touch beyond my friends at UNC, but the other thing for me that really made me come into my own there was <clears throat> a few classes that I took that were specifically around like black writing. And, and so I was introduced to a lot of authors who I'd never heard of or, or hadn't gotten to read in, in high school or whatever. And so um, James Baldwin, that was my first time yeah. really, I mean, I might've read him in high school, but I, I can't, I don't remember. I don't remember doing so. I feel like it. And if I did, it really didn't hit me until I was in college. The fiction or the nonfiction? The nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. The nonfiction for me. Oh my goodness. Uh, Notes of a Native Son. I just, it it also happened. I mean, so I was reading in college, but then I was rereading Baldwin in grad school. And this is right around the time I cut my hair off. This is right around around the time Eric Garner was happening. Um, And then a little after that, Philando Castile, it all feels like a blur. But that was happening. And I remember feeling, realizing really for the first time, which maybe sounds wild to people, but like really realizing the fact that I talk a certain way I was raised a certain way. I, you know, lucky enough to have a the master's degree, but like people will still look at me and see a black woman, and and some people have certain <laughs> very negative feelings about that, and I have no control over that in a lot of ways, like especially in regards to police and 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 that kind of thing. And so Baldwin really put it into words um, in a way that I had never read before and maybe had read, but like wasn't ready to feel yet. So definitely Baldwin. Um, I'd also say Stephen King. <laughs> um, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I'd, I'd say he, he shaped me, but he's definitely, I mean, definitely shaped the things that I enjoy. Um, I loved watching his, like the movies adapted from his work. Those are the first things I saw or first things I knew about him were the movies. And then I took a horror lit class also in college. I keep plugging UNC Chapel Hill. <laughs> um, it's a good school. It's, you know, I, I learned, I got so much from my time there. Um, but I took a really fun horror lit class like my senior year. And I read The Shining. And that book is way better than the movie, I have to say. Um, but what he's able to do with these characters that feel so, that feel so real and, and, um, to take these situations that, um, I mean, The Shining isn't maybe a good example, but like his collection Night Shift, it's like there's a, uh, there are trucks that are evil. Like there, he has a whole story about trucks um, and it's terrifying. And it's like, how do you do that? Because he's just brilliant. And I love that kind of, uh, you know, finding horror in the mundane or, or the unusual. So I would, I would say Stephen King too. 
His book about writing is really fascinating. Yes. Really inspiring. Yes, absolutely. Even even if you're not into his work in specific, his book about writing is really, really helpful. Who who else? Oh, I mean, I would say Octavia Butler. Octavia Butler. I first read her in high school. Um, I, I clearly associate <laughs> authors and books with like when I first read them because for some reason it just really feels like, again, like certain books when I read them at a certain time, it's just like, like immediately in my brain. Yeah. And, and I read that with my, the first black teacher, possibly the only black teacher I had at my high school um, in an African-American uh, lit class. Uh, I know. Miss <laughs> Henderson wonderful woman. Uh, um, and we read, we read Kindred. And I remember being like, what? You can do this? You can do this about slavery? Like, it's wild. It's wild and beautiful and terrifying um, and funny in some parts and, and feels so fresh. And, and I, I just love the way she was able to blend genre with very serious, heavy topic. Um, I think that's so admirable. And I, I really wanted yeah. to do that with this book um, of having those uh, really serious conversations and, and, and themes, but also having something scary and, and funny. I wanted this to be funny and have those moments of, of just like, yeah, the ridiculousness of, of the everyday mundane. Yeah. And Toni Morrison. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I didn't say Tony first because I feel like I haven't read as much Tony Morrison. Sula, Sula though, definitely had a big impact on this book. Sula went, and Sula, I loved Sula. Um, Especially like the friendship dynamic and the passage of time and, and yeah, Sula for sure. Um, But yeah, no, I'm, I'm one of those people who Hasn't read as much as I wish I had, but I guess that's everyone. <laughs> there's, there's there's still plenty of time for that, but you gotta you gotta you gotta head down the Tony Road because she is an absolute genius. Song of Solomon is one of my favorite books of all time. Um, there's just a part in the middle where something happens, you know, and, and and you're just like, oh, like I remember where, like you talk about ages, like I remember where I was sitting when I read that moment and like. Oh, this is so beautiful. Oh my god. And um yeah, no, she's a she's a national treasure, absolutely. Yes. I I love sometimes watching her interviews just for to you know, inspiration and getting me like hyped. <laughs> but I love that you're open to um also being inspired with this book by film. And you've talked about Jordan Peele being a big um inspiration on this book. Yeah, yeah. I I remember when I saw that movie. Well, it wasn't that long ago, but I even remember the Get conditions. Out, yeah. Get out. Yes. Um, although you know, I would pause and go back and say that Akeem Peel was a big inspiration. Um, okay. For this book as well. Um, there's a skit uh, that is hilarious. I, I can't remember what it's called. I think it's like acapella group or something like that have you seen this one it's like no one of them it's like this group of mostly white guys all white guys except for um i can't remember if it's key michael key who starts off one of them starts off with the group and he's the one who's like who does the like 
bum, 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 bum at the end of like the, you know, like those old school, like acapella groups, like, do, 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 do. Um, and everyone's like, you did great. That was wonderful. And then the other one comes, (laughs) um, and he's like joining the band and he adds on his own little flourish after the first black guy's flourish. Um, and everyone's like, that was wonderful. And they have this moment. He and Bill have this moment where they're like, who are you? <laughs> Taking my white people from me. Um, and, and like, I don't know. I think I'd experienced, I knew what this, this not phenomenon, but like I knew what that kind of moment is when you're like clocking the other black person, but I'd never seen it expressed that way. And I found it mm. so funny. Um, and I, I definitely filed that away. However many years ago I saw that and have thought about it ever since. Um, and then of course to get out, like I remember that came out. I loved, I've loved horror. I loved goosebumps as a kid. Um, I loved scary stuff as a kid, although I was pretty scared as a kid and now I'm a lot better. Um, but I got, I got a ticket to sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> I, uh, but I got a ticket to see get out, um, by myself matinee on like Saturday. I was like one of two people in the theater, um, this is in Williamsburg. Uh, nobody was up that early. And, um, I just remember loving it. I loved it. I laughed. I was terrified. And then the first thing I wanted to do, and this is how I know I loved it because I don't do this all the time, um, was I called my dad and I was like, cause he'd seen it and he's like, you gotta see, you gotta see it. And I was like, I saw it. It's amazing. And we talked about it for like hours on the phone. I was walking through Williamsburg. Like I wasn't ready to get on the train yet because it was such a brilliant take on, you know, the well-meaning white people, all those things that I had thought about in different ways of like, like I would compartmentalize them like, oh, you know, the, this is ridiculous. But to see it in this um, really entertaining, funny way uh, that got at these topics that would, I think, otherwise make a lot of people uncomfortable and probably still make people uncomfortable, but like, at least it looked great. <laughs> um, I thought it was brilliant. And that definitely had an impact on me for sure. Yeah. It's funny you, your story about it. Cause I, I am not into horror. So I waited a long time and people were finally like, it's not that scary. Just go see the damn like it's amazing. It's not that scary, and he's playing with horror tropes, but it's not really a horror film. Um, so, but I did see it like late in the run. Very few people in the theater, but I'm like, this is amazing. I want to talk about this to the end of time. However, it is brilliant. I do quibble, and I wonder where you fall on this point. The ending. You like? Do you like? And I'm sure you've done the deep dive. Do you like the ending we got or the original ending? I like the ending we got, but I completely understand the alternative ending, right? You're, and this is the one where it's like he's like, if there's an actual cop, it's not his friend at the end, right? Right. He yeah. gets arrested. He goes to prison. Yeah. And then he has to, and then, he's, then he's talking to Lil Rel in prison. And Lil Rel's like, I know you didn't do it. And we know he didn't do it. But like, you know, this is the world we live in. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. I'm glad that we didn't go with that ending. I mean, the time, the timing of that, I also think, and I don't know if this is leading into, into the other black girl, but I, I think about endings a lot. Um, and that ending I loved. Um, but when I saw the alternative ending, I was thinking of the night of the living dead ending 
which I don't know if you've seen that. I think that's legitimately scary. So maybe don't see that <laughs> if you haven't. Um. <laughs> well, I've seen Candyman. I could deal with it to a certain extent. I'm just, I'm not going to like Saw. Oh, yeah. I do love Saw too. <laughs> but that's like a different level. That's like gore. That's what I'm saying. It's horror for no yeah, purpose. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But in Candyman, he cuts his arm off, and I'm watching like this, like, oh, this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, Night of the Living Dead, which I'm sure, like, you know, zombie movie. Um, and this is maybe not a spoiler, but the very end of the movie, the black man um, who plays the main character has gotten through every every burning hoop. He's gotten through the zombies. He's gotten through the... The, the stupid white people that he's trying to help. He has gotten through everything. And then at the very end of the movie, it's morning and the government or whoever it is who's in charge now because zombies attack, like who knows. Um, they're going around like killing all the zombies they're finding um, and rounding them up. And he looks through the peephole and they see movement and they shoot him thinking he's a zombie and he dies. And that's the end of the movie. Sorry. Spoiler alert. <laughs> you made it through and then, oh, the government gets you. Right? And and that, that role was actually not specifically written for a black man. Um, but there are issues with when it came out because I believe it was 1968. And it was maybe not the best time. Um, I think they maybe like held off releasing it. I could be wrong. But this is all to say that like that ending is one of my favorite endings of all time. <laughs> and I'm kind of a sick, maybe that's a sick thing to say, but like, I, I really think there's something fascinating about someone who has, and, and depressing and very sad, but also telling, I think too, of, of human nature. Um, all of those things are really interesting to me that if you've worked through all of these things, you have tried your best, you have survived against all of the odds, and then None of that mattered. And that felt really realistic to, of course, like Black people in America. Um, and it's definitely something I was thinking about with Nella um, in terms of like her working through this whole thing. But to go back to Get Out, I think that for that ending, that that would have been too much. Like, I feel like it was so funny. And I think to take that turn genre-wise, uh, not even genre-wise, but just like, the, the feeling, the effect, the shadow on that film would be so different. Mm. Um, you talk about genre. A lot of people have talked about how you had the courage in this book to really start in one genre and with uh, without almost real any warning to bend into a different genre. And I think a lot of people, even if they haven't read the book, they know that much about it. So that's not a spoiler. Um I think that takes a lot of courage as a writer, because I think, especially as a young writer, you know, people might say, oh, you've lost control of your narrative. You've left genre. You've you've broken all these rules. You kind of do that. And I, I, I just want to hear you talk about having the courage to do that and the choices to say, okay, I'm going to go from over here. I've set up this world, and then I'm going to go over here. And you didn't really see that coming. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, I wasn't really thinking about, I didn't really start thinking about the genre thing, maybe not being everyone's jam until, <laughs> which is probably good. I'm glad I wasn't because I, I really was into this idea of 
the sto- kind of story that like for me kind of reminded me of like the Twilight Zone, which is something else that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. of a world that often seems ordinary, you know, and you're brought into it and, and things are just not as they seem. The original Twilight Zone? Yeah, yeah. The, bla- the black and white. Black and white, TV- Rob okay. Serling. Okay. Yeah, I haven't oh, seen the. Okay, all right. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I, I raised in the classics. Um... <laughs> yes, yes, you are. Um, no, but I, and I love that. Um, and I really enjoy fiction and stories that do that. I, I love uh, Stepford Wives. I love Rosemary's Baby. Um, I don't think I don't always love it, but it's something that I I genuinely and generally enjoy. So like, I think that for me, it just felt really natural. Um, I knew there was going to be some kind of um, control. I won't say too much, but I knew there was going to be some kind of thing that had power over people. (laughs) Um, And it was really a matter of, of how, how that was going to go and what that was going to look like. Um, But it wasn't really until I was querying agents and I was like it's a horror tinged satirical sci-fi <laughs> it's like what do I call this I and I don't know I don't know it's not everyone's jam though and that's that's fine that's okay uh, I, I, let me ask you because you wrote this in six months right I wrote it in nine months nine months I will, yeah ish I mean once I got an, I got an agent after finishing, you know, a few dra- after writing a few drafts, and then we we did a lot of work on it after those nine months. But the really, it took nine months to to get that story down. And you were you were always in the same place physically when you were writing. No, I wasn't. Um, you mean like uh, occupation wise? No, I mean literally like 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 in some of the novels that i did um i wrote i did a bunch of writing in jamaica right i would go to rock house for like the month of december and then be all alone and write and i over time but i could never finish there and over time and so i finished back in new york and over time i would notice the things that you write about when you're in jamaica and the things that the same characters do is different than when you're in New York. So when I'm like, oh, look, the novel turned here in the eighth chapter. Well, yeah, you started working on that in New York, where before it was all built, the first age or built in. So I wonder with you, like, was there some life change that accompanied where in the manuscript you start going in a different direction? I I wouldn't say there was only because when I went into this knowing that there was going to, going to be something wrong with Hazel. Like I knew there was going to be something wrong with her. That was like most likely not of this world. Cause I also love lifetime and like Dateline. And so <laughs> some in single white female. So like I knew someone was going to be up, but I think that's really interesting. You say that because that definitely there are parts of the book that I remember when I made that significant edit and where I was, um, especially last year um, during all the George Floyd stuff that had a really big impact um, on my edits. Um, but the, the actually the first, the earlier parts, I was still working in book publishing too. And the earlier parts right. happened to be the most publishing space heavy. And so like when Nella's in her cubicle, 
smelling the grease. Like I was also in my cubicle when I was writing that scene. Um, and I, I truly, it, it hasn't really changed from that original scene. I mean, there are edits, of course, but I don't think it would have turned out that way if I had, you know, if it were four months later, however many months um, I quit. So I started writing this in January, 2019, and I put in my notice in March, 2019. Um, so <laughs> that summer I was, I was working on the, the rest of it. And it's, I don't know. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> I mean, I do, but I still, I don't know. Can I make it happen again? I don't know. <laughs> no, it, it shouldn't happen it's, again. <laughs> it's definitely some once in a lifetime found the golden ticket, but you know, it's, it's, it's not lottery. You know, you earned it. You've been working toward becoming a writer and building yourself as a writer for a long time. So it's fully earned. Um, you know, so don't sort of pinch yourself of like, uh, like, you know, I mean, this is years and years of building toward this moment. And now you're going into, or you're into Hulu, into television. Tell me about the world of adapting um, with the awesome Rashida Jones. Yeah, she's amazing. Oh my God, she's amazing. It's, it's been, it's been wild. Um, is the best way and surreal. Uh, I mean, we first zoomed last summer, and again, <laughs> we know what last summer was. I was like sitting in my, uh, you know, our studio apartment at the time, and like, how am I zooming with Rashida Jones? And like, there's also a pandemic happening, and then like, protest. It's just like one of those moments where I was like, wow. Um, and I was, I was really nervous, of course, at first. Um, but she just got the story, gets the story, gets the vibe, the vision. And we have just been like having a wonderful time writing, uh, you know, the pilot and, and talking about um, how to be really intentional about um, all of these things that are now in a lot of ways um, not more complicated because we're in a, we're in a world that's very different. Like the conversations happening now around race and talking about race in the workplace are different than they were when I wrote this book, uh, two years ago. And so how do we make this so that this show still feels of the moment, um, and also brings in those genre elements and also, and also, and also, and also. And so it's been really fun and, and I'm not going to say easy. It's been hard uh, in a lot of ways. Um, just again, opening up my circle in a way that's completely new to me because I've never written a script before in my life, uh, but I'm really enjoying it. And I love watching TV now and being like, I see what you did there. I see what you did. Mm. I like it. Mm. Or like, I see what you did mm. and I hated it. And we're not doing that. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the things that she's, she's taught you? Cause she's helping you move from your expertise in one area of writing and some of it's transferable and some of it is different. And so what does she, what does she help you learn about TV writing? I mean, really like <sighs> writing in a way that, you know, you don't have, a lot of space. Like you don't have a lot of time to go into uh, like Nella's entire backstory of her, you know, her history, her dating history, her time in Connecticut, being the only black girl, like you have to really signal those in a way. Um, and uh, that's been something that's been really fascinating as going through, I mean, we made an outline. Um, we 
work through the outline and tra- really translating that into a script and, and going beat by beat, like really getting into every single moment um, has been just amazingly helpful and something that I never thought about uh, ever because I never had to. <laughs> and now I really uh, am leaning into those, again, those signals, um, the, the conversations. Um, and just because something works doesn't necessarily mean it works there is something else too uh, that I am learning as well. You know, I think in a book, if you have a lot more space in some ways um, and, and flexibility, but then I also think there's more flexibility in the book world too. So, so that adaptation that, or that um, changing that kind of idea too is, is, is hard, but it's, and I'm like, I'm looking up at my script, my screenwriting book, which is why <laughs> I am uh yeah, kind of lost in that because it's it's such a humbling experience, I would say. I mean, I'm working on a script as well, and I find that when we go into book writing, we're also thinking about diction. We're also thinking about description. We can use language in rhythmic ways, that Baldwin, that Morrison-esque way, that like gets you through and but you also have to have that you have to have a scene that makes sense but you also have to describe it in lyrical rhythmic ways and for the screenwriting doesn't require that you gotta like use these words as building blocks to create a picture that makes sense to the story yes that's a great point i mean (laughs) there were times where i wrote something and i was like i think like at the beginning and i think that it's funny to look back on it um, not that we've been working on it that long, but it feels like, you know, we've been in it for so long and it's funny to look back and remember how much more attached I was in some ways to, to the, those parts of it, of, of writing and this, oh, this sounds really good. And now I'm just like, okay, <laughs> how can we make this, like, still have this translate in a way that is, um, purposeful and intentional again, that I feel like intentionality is like, that is something that, it happens in, in, for me, I feel like more organically while writing prose than it, it does in this way. And so that's a, something that's been a really, really interesting learning experience. And I'm hoping it'll translate to my next book. <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I mean, it can't, it, it can't not. I mean, like every experience you have is going to be part of that so like yeah of course of course it'll come in but also you're back in your you know your home court your first love you know um you know i mean like you know you went and got an mfa for this thing you know what you're doing when you're writing a novel <laughs> well it's funny i got an mfa in nonfiction writing <laughs> but right, it's all connected right. like it's all connected clearly yeah you i mean you study fiction in the creative right i mean like i went to columbia i didn't finish like you did but i went to columbia we studied fiction and nonfiction, even though i was nonfiction concentration that's true that's true that's very true yeah we had our our not electives but yeah yeah and the end and i think they need to go hand in hand for sure did you see um i don't know how it was like for you guys the new school but did you ever see on girls when she went to iowa and what the classroom would be like and stuff. Oh man, what season is that? It was either the last or the penultimate. I didn't. I did not. I think I watched through the first three or four seasons. Um, yeah. It 
Is it, what's it like? <laughs> I thought it was super accurate. I was like, this is, this is what it's like, you know, just emotionally, like, you know, you're in the room and you present your work and some people are like, this is amazing. But she says, everything is amazing. And he says, that was shit. But he says, everything's shit. And she's your friend. So she gives you like good, reasonable critique. And you said something mean about his work last week. So he's going to say something mean about your work this week. And like, okay, I know how to read all these comments and put the, but, but the two of you, I trust you. I like your writing. You're going to give me real stuff. So like, I'm learning from the two of you and the rest of you. I'm like, all right, brain assault. <laughs> Totally. But it's very emotionally charged and like... So much so. And and the thing that was really... The thing about non, the nonfiction program is like, we were all opening up. I mean, most people were writing personal, personal things. Uh, I think there are a couple mm-hmm. people who are writing research things that, you know... And so you learn a lot about everybody really fast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she's depressed. Look, look at, at her work. Right. He's, he's, he's not. not. Look, look at his work. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I was actually talking to one of my MFA buddies yesterday, uh, like reminiscing about just, yeah, like, oh, that's the one who wrote the piece on like this topic or this issue. And it's like, oh, no, 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 that was the other person. And like, they always did that. Remember how they always did this? And that's yep. exactly right. Like that that vibe. Um, ultimately though, I, and I, people ask me this a lot and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you said you didn't finish at Columbia, but I have a lot of people ask me how I felt about my MFA experience. Was it worth it? Um, and I say yes and no. I think for me, I met so many great people that I'm still in touch with. It's really all about the connections for me that I made, but everyone has a different experience and the money, that's a different podcast conversation. It was really valuable for me. I could not write fiction before I got to school. And I felt very confident in nonfiction. And, but I was, I definitely benefited from the microscoping of the text that we did going through George Orwell and Joan Didion and some of the other things that we read. Um, yes, but, but, but the first fiction class I took just opened a couple of doors and was like, look, if you can do this, you can do this. It's just a small, like, and they kind of opened up the door and then it was like, oh, and then I was able to write. I remember the first thing I wrote though was kind of um, a fiction piece. It was kind of a parable. Um, It was kind of in like 1940s kind of language and vibe. And that's where it was set. And it was about a black man for whom white people become invisible to him. (laughs) And of course, I'm the only one in the class. And the white people flipped out. They were like, we don't like it. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't like this vibe. It wasn't trying to be postmodern David Foster Wallacey. It was like, you know, like, like Langston Hughes kind of vibe to it. And the teacher was like, okay, stop. This is amazing. All they like never did this. All of you are wrong. I'm like getting crushed, and I'm like, oh my god, this is horrible. And he's like, no, stop. All of you are wrong. This is amazing. And I was like, oh, okay, this is good. This is a good start. <laughs> that sounds incredible. So I need, but I needed that validation because I was not at all confident that I could do anything fictional. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I 
need to read this story. Second of all, (laughs) 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 um, no, it's, it's, it sounds wonderful. Um, the the other thing I was going to say is that was the other thing I got out of it was having two different, two different voices saying two different things about the same thing about your, your work. Um, that is something that I could have teachers grade me when I was younger. I had my dad giving me feedback all the time, but like, it's not the same as having, you know, being in a room with other people who are here to do, you know, are at least expected to want to get feedback on their own work. Um, and so that was something that was really valuable for me. Um, I won't say I didn't like read reviews of of the other black girl that didn't frustrate me, you know, that were negative or, or picked quibbled about certain things. That's, but I think that's normal. Um, I didn't engage with that in a, in an unhealthy way. Um, but I, I do think again, having that experience was really huge for me, even though, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It, it was, it was very much, it was kind of like Broadway and, and valuable in that, you know, on Monday and Tuesday, I'm writing something and on Wednesday afternoon, I'm presenting it and people are responding to it. And that closing that loop allowed me to take that back with me to the computer or the, or the desk and to say, okay, you know, if you do this sort of thing, then people will say this, so don't do that or do more of this or whatever. And, you know, you need, you needed that, 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 that feedback loop that was really, really small to fully understand what you were doing and the impact you were having. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely. So, okay. One more thing, cause I've kept you for a long time and I really super appreciate it. I ask everybody this question, what is your superpower? What is the thing that you do better than other people that has led to your success? Mm. Oh, I love this question. The the first thing that comes to mind for me is um, empathy. Uh, I love um, I love conversations like these. Like I love having like one on ones with people. I've worked in before publishing. I worked at a pie shop in Gowanus. Um, before that, I worked. At, I've worked in cupcake shops and coffee shops, and I love. I love those kind of things, those kind of conversations you have with people. And I feel like that's because I, I just feel like I'm a pretty empathetic person um, for better, for worse, but ultimately for better, I feel. And I'd say that. Thanks so much to Zakia for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because – You can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality. Maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. And Nick Karp, our booker, is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we'll be back on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick... Let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. 
My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered.